Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and as always, it's a true honor to have you joining me today. I'm wishing all of you a lot of ease, some rest um, during this ongoing pandemic time. I have a guest today that, um, I I mean, I generally love all of my guests. Um, This particular guest is someone who, I don't know, I just feel real kinship with. um, And I think you can hear that come across in the interview. It's a really powerful um, conversation and full of lots of wisdom. And so I will introduce that conversation in just a moment. I have a collaboration that is coming up. So March 20th from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ilya Parker of Decolonizing Fitness and I will be hosting a live webinar called Navigating Pandemic Fatigue Through a Disability Justice Framework. And we would love you to join us. Um, You can purchase a ticket uh, to attend live um, and there will also be recordings available. So this webinar is about navigating, not fighting off or combating pandemic fatigue through a disability justice framework. And it's an offering that aims to honor that this pandemic time This slowing down is a pace of life that is necessary for many people, including myself, and also offers us a lot of lessons towards individual and collective liberation. In this virtual webinar, Ilya Parker and I will share our personal experiences with our complicated queer bodies during this pandemic, and will provide a framework for thinking about taking lessons forward beyond this pandemic time. Ilya and I will also present material on a disability justice perspective on rest, relating to time and moving through the world in ways that honor the body's needs. If you register, you can submit a question um, prior to the event, and there will be, as I said, recordings available. If you haven't already, the first thing you need to do is go over to the archives for the Living in the Square Body podcast and check out my conversation with Ilya. It's episode 14. You'll get a real sense of how amazing this person is. I'm constantly supporting as much as I can, everything they're doing, you can join um, Ilya's Patreon for a lot of just really actually important information about how to relate to movements and bodies that are complicated. Ilya's movement practice and relationship to body ease is one that uh, is truly inspiring and it's truly also inclusive of all bodies. And that is not something you can say about a lot of um, movement practitioners or people in the wellness industry. So I love Ilya. 
I think you probably will get something pretty important out of this um, webinar and you can register. There's a link in the bio of my website at Living in This Queer Body, or you can just go to livinginthisqueerbody.com and you can register. And there is a, a sliding scale fee for Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color. Um, and we would love to see you there on March 20th. Okay, so um, on to the interview. I had the pleasure of interviewing Colin Hagendorf. Colin is a writer, podcaster, trans Jewess, and New Yorker in diaspora. She is the author of the 2015 recovery memoir, Slife's Harvester, a memoir in pizza, and an as yet untitled novel in progress about lesbians and queens that Brontes Purnell described in a text message as, quote, East Coast Love and Rockets. So that's something to really look forward to. She writes the monthly print fanzine Life Harvester with her partner, Rebecca Giordano, and hosts, engineers, and edits the podcast Life Harvester Radio, a series of monthly conversations with writers, artists, activists, tattooers, musicians, and other counterculture types about their cultural production under capitalism, aka why should we make stuff when society sucks? So if you want to find out more about Colin and all of the things that she does, go to uh, www.colinhagendorf.com. Uh, in this episode, we discuss uh, childhood gender play, complicating trans coming out narratives, which is really, I think, an important important thing to be talking about, uh, the significance of sobriety and secure relational attachment in Colin's creative life, her relationship to punk, dissociation, and transformative justice, and the clarity that comes when you get on the right psych meds. I really love Colin, and I hope you will enjoy this listen. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it is a true pleasure for me to be doing this. Okay, I love the podcast. I'm happy to be a part of it. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for that. Especially, that means a lot coming from you as someone who also has a really rad podcast. So, I guess in in getting started, uh, I wanted to ask you what your earliest experiences or memories are of either being in a body or like experiencing what it means for other people to be in a body? Ooh, this is an interesting twist. And I think it's hard for me. So I had like um, very recently, like sort of in the past few months, I started a few appropriate psych meds for the first time in my life mm. and that has kind of led to this watershed moment where I realized that I have been somewhere between like a uh, low-key and uh acutely dissociated 
pretty much at all times for as long mm. as I can remember. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I've been thinking about this question a lot. And like, I remember when I first started to realize I was going to transition, I called um, my best friend since I was 13, um, who is a trans man. And he had transitioned a few years before me, like a full decade, maybe even. And, um, but like, we've known each other just consistently since we were kids, you know? And I was like, Hey man, like what were, what was I like? Mm. I just like, can't, I can't remember anything from when we were yeah. teens. Yeah. And he was like, Oh no, no, no. It's cause you're trans. I can't remember anything either. Sorry. <laughs> um, like none of us can remember stuff. Totally. Yeah. And so like, I remember, you know, like, I think most of my memories of having a body or like being aware of my body are really negative, right? Like mm-hmm. I remember feeling inadequate athletically as a child. Yeah. Like I didn't, my body just like, it felt like my body didn't want to do that. Like I didn't want to do to play fucking basketball or whatever, but also like it felt like I couldn't get my body to do what I wanted it to do. Mm-hmm. And then like when I was like 12 or 13, there was this birthday party for my, oh no, it was an anniversary for my grandparents, uh, Sam and Sylvia. And uh, they, uh, their kids threw them this huge party in this actually just closed like last month, this old um, Romanian Jewish steakhouse on the lower East side called uh, Sammy's Romania. Mm. It's like, the, it's very expensive and the food's terrible, but it's the, uh, you know, ambiance is like, like nothing. It's, it's no place like it. Mm. And, um, and they had like this, uh, it hired this guy that played like polka covers of contemporary popular songs on a keyboard. And he was like a hundred, you know, it's like this really weird vibe. And I was like, I must've been young. Cause I still have long hair. I had long hair as a, as a kid because I was into grunge. Mm-hmm. Right. And like my childhood bedroom was just plastered, like when I was 10, with posters of like um, uh, long haired men, like Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell and like yeah. whoever else. The yeah. guy from Soul Asylum, the fuck is this? Dave Perner. And I was like really, uh, and Kurt Cobain, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. what, what egg did not obsess over Kurt Cobain, you know? Yeah. And and I, so I had long hair, you know, I had hair like down a little past my shoulders um, in like fifth and sixth grade. And I, um, so it was probably like in sixth grade, I would imagine. And I was wearing like one of those like skateboard brand, like um, bowling shirt kind of things that they had in the nineties where it was yeah. like a retro, like a modern retro, like kind of the movie swingers style mm-hmm. and like some baggy jeans or something. I had braces and like probably was wearing a weird necklace. And, um, you know, I looked like a tomboy, I guess. And like, yeah. you know, turns out I was, but like, mm. uh, this waitress called me, she or her or whatever addressed me with female pronouns. Um, and I thought it was, I was just delighted, like, and not in a way where I was like, I'm finally being seen. Like, I just felt like it was so funny. Um, and I, and I told my dad, I was like, Hey, just check out this funny thing that happened. And he was like, not in a way that like made it seem like he was ashamed of me or anything, but more like he was 
I think like a classic sort of good person with an internalized patriarchal sensibility. Yeah. He was like concerned for my well-being that yeah. like I didn't know how to navigate the world. And so as a parent, he was like, actually, that's not good when that happens because like X, Y, or Z bad thing could happen. And like I, it was became clear to me that this thing that I had taken some like pretty guileless joy in mm. um was like not good. Mm-hmm. Um and then like I think I sang in punk bands in high school. Mm-hmm. And then but when I got to my 20s, I started playing like guitar or bass in bands. And I think I'd always had like kind of a um like a sense that I was not coordinated enough to play an instrument. Mm. And and when I got over that, there was this real sense of like being in my body while playing a bass in a band. Mm. And band in practice more than at shows. At shows I was so drunk. Um, but like in band practice, it was just like, I was just like really in my body and doing things with my body in a way that felt like, oh, this is a body and it's mine. Mm. Um, and then like my most acute memories of having a body are much more recent than childhood. But like, um, in my early twenties, I started like really intensely like dissociating every time I had sex. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of um, like standing on the precipice where I know that that is about to happen. Yes. Where it's like, I am sucked so, so deeply into my body and then like just shot out, you know? And it's like that feeling of being right there and really feeling the intense discomfort. And then like before it just like everything vanishes, you know, and then like I come out of a blackout smoking a cigarette, you know, and the sex is done. And, and those are the, the moments like in my early twenties that feel the most like, like I was the most aware of my body. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, it, it's so interesting that kind of description of dissociation as in some ways of a kind of embodiment, you know, I mean, I think that people think like, Oh, it's, you know, it's like an outer body experience, but it's actually, you know, the way you're describing it and the way a lot of people, you know, I know, and have experienced myself describe it is that it's a kind of awareness of where awareness of your body moving or your, your body and mind kind of like being in, in conflict. And I guess it, I wonder what for you, or what did you find maybe in your twenties that you maybe leaned on or helped you kind of manage those disconnected moments, like the dissociation? Yeah, I I didn't, you know, like, Mm. I think, you know, you know, I've been able to be present in my body, like actively in a real way for maybe six months now, max, not even, no, 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 uh, for three or four months. And I was trying to describe to my therapist what the sort of difference was. And, um, and I was like, I was like, you know, like I had these moments of like real intense dissociation that were trauma based. And then I had these other moments where I wasn't dissociating that intensely. And I'm, and what I'm realizing now is that I was also dissociated in that, in those moments, you know? Mm. And so what, 
what it feels like, you know, this is what I was said. I said maybe um, a few, a week or two into being like, well, I have feelings. Um, and I was like, what it feels like is that like, I spent my whole life walking in like two inches of water, you know, like in a, in a pair of socks. Right. And then like, sometimes the water would rise up like to my waist or to my neck. And it was, I knew there was a different, like, this is a bad thing. Um, this is scary. And then it would go back down to those little two inches. And it's like, that was what I thought was what being present was, was this low key sense of evacuation for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, I like have been, um, you know, uh, I quit drinking just about 10 years ago. At this point, I've been on hormones for over a year. Um, I've been, and then like, I sort of finally realized, oh, I have these, um, you know, uh, character defects that need uh, medical intervention. And that's a, that's a AA joke. Like, I don't think of my mental health as character defects, but I feel like yeah. not everyone is in the program and I have to say, say that. Um, and I, um, and I like went to a psychiatrist and I got medicated. Um, and it's been, and then there was like this, that like a, and like, it's, it's like I stepped onto dry land or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, there was this, there was this time between when I stepped out of that two inches of water and started walking on the, the land where like I was walking on the dry land, like I was there, but my socks were still wet. You know what I mean? Like I was just like <laughs> yeah. still sort of leaning into this sense of like, oh, I can just vanish. Or like, I don't have to be here. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I feel like now sort of months into just walking on dry land, my socks are finally starting to be like really dry. And I'm just like in my body all the time. Um, and I, but I think like, I don't think I used, I think I used drugs and, um, drinking to, to deal with yeah the fact that I dissociated because when I was, when I was drunk, I felt like I was present mm-hmm. and I maybe was, um, and like, that was a tool and it served me so well. And I'm not like, I have no, I have zero re- regrets. I mean, I have tons of regrets in my life. I have zero regrets about like um, being an addict or being, um, having done some real stupid shit when I was young, because I feel like a lot of the decisions I was making were made out of like trying to find a sense of safety that I couldn't find in the world at large. And like, frankly, like eating a handful of pills and drinking a pint and a half of whiskey was like, I think that like at at points saved my life. Yeah. Self-preservation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and now, and then then like I reached a point in my late twenties where I was like, Oh, this is not actually helping me anymore. Like I've gotten everything I can from it. Mm-hmm. I need to stop. And that was really difficult. And then, and then I stopped, you know, and it's like all these kind of, um, and it's like, Oh, coincidentally, you know, um, big hand quotes. Uh, it was like shortly after I quit drinking, I was like, Oh, I'm a transsexual, you know, <laughs> like, uh, mm. I, uh, need to, this is what's going on. Um, and 
it still took me seven years or something from that realization to um, starting hormones. That sounds, that seven years sounds like it was, I I mean, I can't imagine, but I, I just, it sounds so complicated thinking about you sort of giving up this, you know, set of self-preservation tools that were no longer helping you, but still, you know, kind of being raw and in sobriety and discovering something about yourself. But, you know, this idea of like being embodied or being closer to, I guess, closer to like a less muddled, you know, version of yourself in a way or a less kind of um, concealed version of yourself, but still, I guess, I, like having ambivalence or confusion or uncertainty about how to proceed is that, do you feel like that, I would imagine, you know, you mentioned trauma, you know, I, I imagine that there's something about that had to kind of come together for you in order to take more clear steps towards transitioning or starting hormones. I talked about this a little bit with, with Zara when he was on my podcast, but you know, there was this, there was this sense that like in my, in my youth, I, I felt like I did not understand how my, like how I was the person I was. I would go to the hardcore matinee at CBGB's or whatever. You might hear my cat some in this interview. Um, she's 18 oh. and she just, she just screams all day because she wants to, I think, remind herself that she's still alive. <laughs> she's, she's great. But um, I've had her for all 18 years. It's wild to, wow. to live with a thing that has like watched me go through so much wow. um, life change. But, um, wow. you know, I go to the CBGB hardcore matinee and, and like the 90s, the CB's hardcore matinee was a real, it was like, kind of a thuggish zone. Um, and it was like, I felt like at any minute I was going to be found out by the, all these violent men and they were going to like, just smash me up. Mm. And I was really titillated by that danger. I was like, yeah, I, you know, I like, I courted sort of dangerous situations when I was younger, but I also like, you know, like hung out at Blue Stockings, the feminist bookstore and like spent a lot of my time in my room listening to Bikini Kill and Heavens to Betsy and fucking the Tau Fairies and uh, Third Sex and like pretty classic queercore bands. And I have these really, these really distinct memories of listening to the CD of the first two records, the Bikini Kill Mm -hmm. um, CD and, and just like laying on my floor in my room, just listening to the rec, like the CD over and over again and thinking about how like my my life would make more sense if I was a girl. Mm-hmm. And I, and like, I was aware enough, like my friends were women and like, I had um, like some, I think as is classic for many, I think trans women or like just men that turn out to be good men. I had like um, some older dykes that were sort of guiding me when I was young. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I knew like life is harder for women. You know, I was like, my life wouldn't be easier if I was a girl. And like, things would not like, it wouldn't be, it's not that, like, I don't think my life would be easier. I know it would be harder, but I feel like it would make more sense. And I didn't know 
what the option, like that, that was, that I could be a girl, Mm -hmm. you know, I knew about my uncle, my dad's kid brother lived in the meatpacking district. And like, there's like a ton of trans sex workers there historically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew that there was like, um, I knew what trans women were, you know, I knew that they were, I knew about them from fucking the crying game in Ace Ventura and uh, fucking the Silence of the Lambs, you know? Um, and I knew about my, my family would go on vacation to Cape Cod um, for a bit every summer. And um, we'd go to Provincetown and I was like obsessed with the drag queens. Like I knew there was this thing, but I was like, that's, I'm not that, right? Like I'm not, I don't want to have platforms on and like a full face of makeup. Right. Like I don't, that's not the thing that I want. And, but I do know that this thing that I'm doing isn't right. And when I reached young adulthood, I was, I had like sort of finally figured it out, right? Like I had been in enough situations around like violent men or like had, you know, like a gun pulled on me or whatever in a, you know, in like a way where I had to like figure out how to bluster my way out of like some really scary stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, I know I did this like sort of body language code switch, you know, where like I would walk differently than I normally did. I would, um, gesticulate differently. My voice was different. Mm-hmm. Like the way I held my jaw was like a really substantial part of that. Um, which I guess is another way I was really aware of my body um, in, my, yeah. in my life. Yeah. And and drinking, I think, and drugs were an access point to me for a kind of masculinity that I, that I felt like I could do. Like, I could drink, and I could drink more than people that were tougher than me in many other ways. And that was, like, a thing that I could hang on to and be like, see, like, I'm not all fucked up. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I realized I was trans, I was like, I've, I've spent such a long time learning just how to feel safe in this body I already have yeah, and feel like right. I'm not a, like a, a, just like a beacon for maladapted violent dudes to just take out their aggression on. Mm. And, and I don't feel nervous when I'm out in the street. I don't feel nervous out in the world. I don't feel like I'm scared. I feel like I can navigate any situation. I feel like I can talk my way out of anything. And do I want to give up those that safety, like, is that necessary? And so that mm. was something I struggled with. And another thing that was a real big issue is, you know, I spent 2005 to 2015 um, working with a like um, transformative justice accountability collective mm. that rose out of the, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but like a kind of me too moment in the punk scene that happened in the early 2000s where there was like, all of these men, like prominent men in punk were being exposed as like predators or abusers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then like the sort of smaller scale versions of those men in the local scenes were, be- and that was happening. And there was um, my friend Cindy Crabb, who I think was also on your show. Yeah. Um, Cindy had written um, this series of questions in her zine Doris to like sort of ascertain what was going on with abuse. And uh, there was this collective in Philadelphia called Philly's Pissed. It, two, it was two arms that worked together, Philly's Pissed and then Philly Stands Up. Mm. And um, 
Philly's stands up was the survivor support wing. Um, and then Philly's pissed was the um, perpetuator accountability group where then they ran processes. And so in New York, we started this thing, Support New York, around a few of the um, sort of more problematic dudes in the scene, you know, and it came out of this very tight knit punk scene. It was like very, I think, you know, a lot of the people that were living as straight and cis are trans or um, dykes now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a very, like we were, we were all young, pretty fucked up, like partying really hard all the time, figuring stuff out. And then also once a week meeting in the kitchen at ABC No Rio to like plan out how we were going to make our, our scene accountable or whatever. And until um, my best friend, since I was 13, who also was part of that group transitioned, I was the only man in the collective. Mm. And it had, and doing that work, it was really, it was something that I would, weaponize is not the word, instrumentalize maybe, like that like I was a man. And so I could tell other men uh, about uh-huh. yeah. their malfeasance in a way that, that a woman could not, uh-huh. um, like, because of, because men don't listen to women fundamentally. That is like not the fault necessarily of individual men. It is like a systemic and cultural problem. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, in, in weighing whether or not I was going to transition, I also, was thinking like, I use my masculinity to make masculinity better. Mm. And if I give up my masculinity, how can I do that? And, you know, it's, and I, and then, and then there was this very simple fact of like, well, it's too late, right? I'm too old. I should have done this when I was, 23 and now that I didn't it's fine I'll just like Mm. uh suffer through the rest of my life and then um Laura Jane Grace who's from um the same uh punk scene as me and who I will not share my personal opinion on transitioned and, and she's older than me and I was like huh maybe I'm not too old and then um my friend um Erica Lyle uh who is like uh interestingly like sort of strong support person in my early sobriety Mm. um or like early I think not drinking is how she would probably characterize it because I don't I don't think she considers herself sober and I I don't want to um misrepresent but she was someone who really was there for me and helped me in an intense way and in that time and then um she transitioned very publicly a few years ago and I was like she's also like I don't know, eight or nine years older than me. And I was just like, fuck, maybe it's not too late. You know, maybe I can do this. Yeah. And that was, that was how the decision got made. And and I mean, and this is also erasing, or not erasing, but just like, I, I should not fail to mention that like, um, for five years, I've been dating my partner and she, I have never had a relationship where with someone who, clearly cares for me this much and and takes care of me this much and in the space that that we built like in our the life that we've built together um 
there was a, a sense of safety that I yeah. felt that I had not felt um, in any other, I, I, at any other point in my life. I imagine like when I was a young child, I, I probably felt safe in a similar way. Um, but it's, um, it's different, obviously. It's like um, deliberate and adult and complicated. And, um, and being, being in a, like a sort of very loving partnership where I am, I feel nurtured and safe and like, I can really figure it all out. It's not gonna, it's not, it's not gonna ruin my life. Um, was, was it just, um, I cannot overstate how right. important that was for, for my being able to say like, fuck, I need to do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pointing to all of these, I mean, primarily your partnership, but pointing to these other folks who you saw and witnessed and had, had access to who were taking these steps. Um, feels like a really important, I mean, it's like a critical thing to acknowledge that, that, that there are times when I think the narrative, you know, some sort of like really limiting narrative around, you know, coming to terms with one's own like gender expression or whatever is, is really limited to these kind of, as you described earlier, like as an aha moment, like as if that moment, you know, in the restaurant when you were 12 or whatever, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't an aha moment. That wasn't like, ah, this is my true self. You know, it, it's a it kind of like a, a whole series of, I don't know, like encounters and experiences and questions. And um, I just, I appreciate you you kind of pointing out that like a bunch of the different dimensions of what went into you coming to the place where you are right now, which is probably going to be a different, you know, I mean, you're, it's not a fixed state, right. You know, and you mentioned that even, you know, kind of before we got, got on here that, that where you were several months ago is, is very different than, than where you are now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, I don't know. I think it's impossible. Like, I just have a, I have, I have a very, let's say, communitarian sensibility, Mm -hmm. you know, and we can chicken or egg that all day about like, whether it comes from punk or it's why I was drawn to punk or like, you know, being an anarchist for my whole life or whatever it is, like drawn to organizing and and political work. But like, um, I, I found the, even when I was older and sort of became more aware of the existence of trans people in more, in, in more diverse um, sort of, you know, realms than, than I had been as a child, I still found that there was this, it was like this story was always about like someone quietly suffering that knew mm-hmm. since they were a kid yep. because they played with Barbies and like blah, blah, blah. And it was all really it all felt really clear cut, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I didn't, I mean, I played, I'd like shaved my sister's Barbie's heads and gave them nose rings with push pins and shit. But like, I didn't play with Barbies. I played with my GI Joes like they were Barbies where like, I didn't, there was never any fighting. It was just like them preparing things and having conversations with each other or whatever. <laughs> um, but like, 
Totally. Also, <laughs> and like when I was, you know, when I was like an adolescent, I like dressed in drag and like went out in the world dressed up like a girl. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm being my true self. It was like, I'm tricking people. I'm fucking tricking people. Mm-hmm. They think I'm a girl. It's so cool to trick people. Like I loved, it's like a, I think like a really classic adolescent agency thing where you're like, totally. oh, this is like, I, I went into the, I was, I used to buy magic cards at this fucking stationery store. Like I walked you from my parents' house, you know? And I was in there one time I don't know why I remember this just now, but I was in there one time and there was these, this older woman uh, and her husband um, looking at uh, picture frames. And, um, and she picked up one picture frame and was like, remarked that the girl in the sort of stock photo that comes inside the frame was, was pretty. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I leaned in and was like, well, that's my cousin. And I told them this whole story about how she was from Queens, but she had moved to Louisville with her family. I'm like, I made up this whole thing. I was like 11 years old. And, um, and when I left the store, I was just like, wow, this feels great that I just like, these people now think that a thing is not true is true. And I'm responsible for that. And so mm. that sort of childhood gender play felt like an expression of that. Yes. Right? It felt like yes. I was like, I'm just tricking people. And that means that I am powerful. That means I have, this was also like, you know, the era of like ad buster culture jamming, like, you know, like Mary prankster bullshit. And so Mm -hmm. it's just like, I'm going to, this is how I can sort of um, subvert things. But I didn't feel like what I was doing was subverting masculinity. I just felt like I was subverting people's perceptions of the world, you know, so in chaos and, and like, I sort of lost that when I reached um, it sounds too clinical to say sexual maturity, but that's like, it's accurate. Um, I, you know, I stopped, I lost interest in that in ways that I think are probably related to tacit pressure from my peers, my family and stuff that like, it wasn't cool. Um, but it didn't feel like that. It just felt like I was, that was like, not my thing anymore. Now my thing was having a foot tall mohawk and a leather jacket and like drinking a 40 on some steps. Mm-hmm. And, and like, so even in my 20s, when I was like, oh, stuff's weird, like I still, and even now as a, I'll be 38 on next Thursday, as a 38-year-old woman, I had a teen boyhood. Yes. And, and even though I was like, some of it was spent laying on my bedroom floor, wishing that I was a girl, I, I love being a teen boy. Being a teen boy is really fun. And so like, do I, um, do I mourn the teen girlhood I never had? Absolutely. I mourn that like all the time. I feel so sad. Um, but I, I loved being a teen boy. I loved like, mm-hmm. I loved what it felt like to just be like, I'm a teen boy. I'm out in the world. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like, um, making out with my friend who's also a teen boy on the subway to like freak out some squares. I'm um, like, you know, on drugs in the mall, uh, breaking stuff, like whatever it was, like, and not that that stuff is inherently boyish or whatever, but it, I, I really love being a teen boy, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. and I think 
the, the narratives that I was exposed to of transition where it was like, I always knew, I always knew, I always knew those never resonated with me. So I yes. was like, well, I guess I'm not really trans. Right. But like kissing my friends, my boyfriends to freak out, to freak out squares as a teen definitely turned into like me and my friends sucking each other's dicks in our twenties. Cause I was like, I obviously queer, like I must, but I love, I just love, I love women but like, I'm obviously some kind of queer because there's something wrong. And mm-hmm. so I must be bi, but like, I, but I wasn't, I do not love men. Um, to paraphrase an, an old friend of mine who decided to stop um, hooking up with men when we were like 23, it's fun, but dudes just never give me major boner. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like I can convince my, like, there's like fun stuff to do, but it's like, yeah. that's just not, that was never where I was. And I, I did, I did not know about, uh, trans lesbians. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't know about, uh, butch trans women. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, I think like many, uh, punk women of my micro generation, you know, 2013, I realized I was trans. Uh, I would say, 30 minutes before I finished reading uh, Nevada by Imogen Binney, right? Mm. And like, part of that is Imogen is from Jersey, about my age, came up in a similar punk scene, similar sensibility, you know, like her lexicon is really familiar to me. We have like, just like a similar sense of humor, you know? So I was like, but this trans woman is a lot like me. But part of it was also that she dated women. Yeah. And I was like, oh, fuck, I can date women. You know, but even Imogen, I went to see her do a book release and she was wearing like a very beautiful gown, you know, and I was like, oh, that's not I I never want to do that. Right. And like, I, I certainly dress differently in. um, In transition in subtle ways, I think, to most of the world and very particular ways to me and right now I'm in like a very like a really nice a little too on the nose did you know I'm a lesbian because I've only been out for you know however many 14 months or whatever um phase where like currently I'm I'm wearing a um Sappho swatch which I don't know if you know swatch made a Sappho watch in the 90s no I didn't I'm wearing a Sappho swatch that Becca gave me for Hanukkah I have like a um double Venus sign earring in. Yeah. Uh, I'm wearing a t-shirt of a GB Jones drawing of, uh, like two hot gals on a motorcycle together. Like it's, (laughs) it's too corny. Like it's, it's just like any one of those things is a really nice, subtle indication. (laughs) All of them together. It's too much, but like, if I'm not going to be too much in like, when I've only been out for like, for like the, the toddler ages where you still say it in months and not years. Well, like, <laughs> when am I going to do that? You know, like when am I going to wear a Joan arbitrating t-shirt with a hat that just says the word Sappho on it again. Right. Like I, I need to do this now. You I have didn't get to, to do you that. Must. When I was, Cause you know, when I was 14, if I had been a dyke, I would have been fucking everyone would have, you know what I mean? Like it would have been, yeah. I would have had two interlocking 
Venus signs. I would have had a labrys shaved into my head at the barbershop on the side of my mohawk. You know, like it would have been. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. You're making, you're definitely like uh, living out and living out that part of your, I mean, just doing it in condensed time, you know? Yeah. It's yeah, really it's... amazing, actually. I mean, I love these descriptions. I mean, I guess what's really striking to me and something I can, you know, I very much can relate to is just this idea of kind of finding moments or points of, you know, recognition in others and yet not ever kind of really disidentifying or not ever identifying with kind of sweeping narratives around gender that and transition and sexuality, you know, also like all of those things combined, you know, I, and I think this idea of like you coming into, you know, like the quintessential, you know, dyke lesbian aesthetics aside, like you coming into a a version of yourself that like incorporates loving your teen boyhood and also, you know, figuring out what your identity, you know, your connection to which trans women is like that, all, that those kind of nuances feel so important to, to talk about and to, I don't know, to tell these stories. Like it's just, it's, it's so much more common, but it isn't, I don't, I, I personally haven't, I don't experience that in that kind of nuance or specificity as much as I would like to, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think like, if we think about things in terms of zeitgeist, yeah, and like sort of the way that um, transness and trans womanhood in particular became like a, which I think like, this is another thing that, that doesn't get talked about enough in trans conversations. And I don't know, I, I don't think I'm the one to talk about it, A, because I am not, I've not been out there very long, B, because I, I just don't think a trans woman should be the one to lead this conversation. But like, I think a lot of the narratives about, like the dominant narratives about transness erase trans masculinities in a pretty intense way that is kind of alarming to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and I, like I said, I'm not, I just can't be, I, I'm not the person to um, necessarily write the ship on this one. but. You know, I think like if we're talking about the zeitgeist, there's this moment where like, um, you know, like the fucking trans tipping point that everyone was talking yeah. about and Caitlyn Jenner and then like non-villains like, um, you know, Janet Mock or whoever. Like there's all these um, trans people sort of coming into prominence, right? But there's, but, but everything is, is for a cis gaze. Because there's this, like, we have this little um, kernel of community that we need to protect. And we can't let, we can't let everyone see the, like, family drama, right? Like, we can't. Mm. <laughs> and, and so it's only, and it's not that those conversations weren't happening then, right? They just were happening totally. among trans people. Totally. And, and we just weren't seeing them reflected in bigger arenas because what was being reflected in bigger arenas was this like sort of consensus like um unofficial community consensus of like this is an airtight 
thing that cis people can have access to that will not, that we cannot find a way that they can turn into a weapon against us. Yes. Yeah. And as um, the sort of presence of trans people in culture has persisted, I think the conversation just grows more complex on like the, on a bigger scale. So like, that's why you can have a, like a detransition baby in 2021. Right. You know, that's why like a novel that really does air some like inter, sorry, intra community um, dirty laundry and like really does complicate some of the more um, pat narratives that uh, Mm -hmm. maybe like a closeted uh, teen or adolescent had, had, were, that was all they had access to in mainstream culture. It's now like the conversation is opening up a bit, you know? And it's not like it's getting safer to be a trans person or anything. Like I, watching the, um, the like sort of um, American turf movement coalesce around Biden's trans military ruling, which is like, fuck yes. that, first of all. Mm-hmm. If it's not clear, um, Fuck the army, fuck ICE, free Palestine, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Like the imperial and colonial projects are, and capitalism, it's all a death cult. And uh, it would not be, I would not feel so good if I were on a, in any sort of public platform and didn't find a way to shoehorn that in. Um, <laughs> but like, it's watching the, uh, like what seems to be a, 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 a US turf movement beginning to coalesce in a more coherent way around um, these like, you know, supposed wins for our community or whatever. uh, Yes. It's terrifying. I'm fucking frightened Mm -hmm. about what the future holds. It does not feel positive. Um, But at the same time, there is this like, there's this this disjuncture between um, sort of lived reality and the worlds of cultural production and entertainment or whatever that we're like, um, that the space has opened up essentially. Right. That's all I'm trying to say to have these more nuanced conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, I would love to, I'm so glad that we're having these conversations and that you're part of it. And um, I would love to continue to have them. I, we're kind of wrapping up our time, but if other people want to be, in conversation with you about any and all of this or yeah, connect with you. How, how can people find you? Uh, my website is um, colinhagendorf.com. And uh, from there, you can find um, the podcast I do, um, which is called Life Harvester Radio. I think um, when this comes out, they'll have the most recent episode will be an interview with Erin Yankee who produced um, the podcast it's all it's like a big podcast circle right now um who produced the podcast it did happen here uh or Mm -hmm. one of the producers uh which is about the um the like um direct action militant response to white supremacist street violence in portland in the 90s Mm -hmm. and is Mm -hmm. like a pretty important i think oral history of a moment when people were not being supported by local government or police in um dealing with strong and organized racist uh street gangs and they took matters into their own hands and dealt with it and it and it's and it's been it's an incredible podcast i highly recommend it um and Aaron will be the the most recent episode i it's a 
podcast, I think much like this, where I just talk um, to people who I either want to be friends with or already am friends with. Um, and it's, it's like rough, you know, it's loosely about like um, adults who do cool stuff and like what they're sort of what they were like when they were young, what they're um, how they got involved in subculture or counterculture. And then like what it is that their adulthood looks like that allows them to have this balance between like, um, you know, not being dead and yeah. <laughs> um, still yeah. making cool stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And then I also do a monthly um, fanzine uh, called life harvester. Can I say the name of the podcast? It's called life harvester radio. Um, yeah. And Life Harvester is a monthly fanzine that I do. It's a single page, double-sided, um, that is um, sort of a, uh, like a, a dumb joke about my, the last fanzine I did, Slice Harvester, where I was, interview, or I was interviewing, where I was reviewing um, every slice of pizza in Manhattan. Um, mm-hmm. Life Harvester is, I am reviewing uh, just um, all components of life. So it's just, it's a variety of writing from book reviews to um, talking about leaf piles to (laughs) describing my transition in um, excruciating detail that I think I I, I work on um, collaboratively with my partner, um, Rebecca Giordano. She edits the whole thing and it's like, you can, if you, I don't think most of the back issues are around anymore, but if you could look through them, you can see this moment from where like before her name is on the um, masthead as editor mm-hmm. and, and after, and it's like the writing improves tenfold. You know, it's mm-hmm. just suddenly I'm like, I, as, as you and the listener may realize I have a tendency to ramble. I have a tendency to like throw 40 threads into the air and then try to bring them back into a weird little bow at the end of a, of a long Thing. And I think that's nice. It's good to be able to make these connections, but sometimes you lose a couple of threads in there, you know, and it's nice to have someone that says like, Hey, what about that? Maybe you talk about that somewhere else. Yeah. Hey, what if you put this thread here? Yeah. Um, and it's just so, there's something so beautiful. I think about having a collaborative relationship that has a tangible, mm-hmm. a tangible output with a person that I care so deeply about where like yeah. I've been doing it for, two years we're in the third year it's a something i envision as at least a 10-year project Mm -hmm. um and and it's like you know the first few months it was like oh is it worth it to put out these pages like this single page every month but now i've been doing it for you know there's 24 issues and like looking at them all in a row i keep a stack of each issue on my desk Mm -hmm. and like looking at them all in a row it's like this pile is just building and it's this body of work that's really impressive yeah and yeah my website there are you can subscribe uh via paypal through my website you can go to patreon and subscribe um you can also just subscribe to a free online email version because it is desperately important to me that i get as much attention as possible regardless of people's financial situations And so I, I got to make it available for free. Right. Totally. Um, yeah. That's amazing. That. Yes. I love it. And I love, I'm a, I'm a fan of your podcast. I'm uh, so like find the like, monthly life harvester just like, so I love it. I love it. I love it. I love 
tan the tangible getting the tangible copy and reading your work and and I really appreciate you taking the time and I to be here with me and this community and I I very much hope we can keep keep having these conversations both between us and more collectively because I I think you know you just have so much to bring to um yeah you have so much to bring I'm a big fan thank you yeah I really appreciate that this I love this podcast like I love what you do I think was Tamara your first episode yeah yes yeah Tamara is I've been friends with Tamara for 15 years or something and I and I had and she told me about your podcast and I listened to that first episode and I've been listening I, ha, I don't think I've missed one since Aww. it's really you're a fantastic interviewer and it's really such delight to listen to and I want to apologize to my um trans parents who told me when I came out that I'm not supposed to talk publicly about trans issues until I've been trans for three years um, because they're right. But also uh, as someone who's made fanzines and shit, since I was like 14, I have, um, I have, I have more of an allegiance to my sense of oversharing than I do to inter transsexuals internationally. Yes. And I'm sorry. I hear that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Colin. <laughs>